Welcome to Phoenix Foundation, an episode-by-episode podcast review of CBS's action-adventure series, MacGyver. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be tackling Season 2, Episode 13, Soft Touch. The original air date for this episode was January 19th, 1987. It was directed by Charles Carell. And it was written by um, a couple of female writers, Joan Booker and Nancy Edo, who this is their only MacGyver. Their mm. only turn as MacGyver. Um, and it marks the return of Penny Parker, which is fun. Yeah. And um, the potential return... Of Yuri maybe. Dimitri. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, well, why don't we do the brief overview? Okay, okay. We'll get into it. Um, in this episode, um, which starts off with a daring Siberian rescue, right. ends up being about... The attempted assassination of a Colombian drug lord informant, uh, who Penny Parker ends up accidentally fumble, bumbles her way into. Yeah, um, and then going a little further in depth, yeah, like like we said, it starts in Siberia. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a crazy opening. It's like okay, there's like nuclear material being transferred. Yeah, on they're a at truck. a reconstitution plant. They yeah. say, and it seems like it, basically Yuri is being used as slave labor here. Right. Um, Yuri and okay, so this is what we're not clear on. So Yuri Dimitri, as played by Elia Baskin, mm-hmm. was a character in season one, episode twenty-one, A Prisoner of Conscience. Yes, he was a political prisoner. He was a political prisoner in a Russian asylum, mm-hmm. uh, and well, well, we didn't really determine for sure yeah. if he was a political prisoner or if he was supposed to be there as a part of their the mental asylum half of the facility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he, he he yeah. was crazy, but. Maybe but sometimes he, he was pretending to be crazy just yeah. so that they wouldn't abuse him on the political prisoner side of the asylum. Yeah. But, yeah, so this is the same actor playing a character with the same name who is also a Russian political prisoner. Political prisoner. And when him and MacGyver meet up in the gulags of this reconstitution facility, mm-hmm. he's like, oh, you're MacGyver. And you're thinking, oh, he's recognizing him for their previous mission. Yeah. And then MacGyver's like, are you Yuri Dimitri? And it's like, <laughs> Do you not you don't remember me like yeah you exactly. saved my life earlier like we were joking around and stuff and you helped the, the chessboard guy and yeah it's very unclear it, it seems that macgyver doesn't recognize him but it does seem that he recognizes macgyver and would it have been that hard to make it just just pretend like they have a history like even if you're worried that people don't remember yuri from the first season yeah just have him say oh yuri i haven't seen you in a year Mm-hmm. Or something like that. Just like kind of. It's good to see you, my friend. Like like something. Yeah, just, any line of dialogue. There's no been. reason to pretend that this is the first time that they've met, unless you're going to change his name from Yuri Dimitri to a different Russian yeah, stereotypical Dimitri name. Yuri. Yeah, Dimitri Yuri. That's fine. Something. Um, but yeah, so he meets up with Dimitri and then uh, performs probably the simplest ever escape yeah, from it, Siberia it, ever. It, they they just take take MacGyver. Well, first of all, MacGyver has somehow. Managed to get got in. the motorcycle back and took it to Siberia. Well, he 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 was a part of the escort for this nuclear truck, right? So yeah. I thought like everything about the escort was part of the foundation, like because like the other rider who shows up with them has got all the papers, and as they pull in, as as like MacGyver pretends like he's heading back, he like says something to the other rider, and the other rider seems like, yeah, okay, bye. Like like they, it's not part of a plan at all that yeah. they're together. That somehow MacGyver has infiltrated. The, he spent the secret four police. years getting into yeah. the KGB. 
it, it all moves very, very fast. And so he just has Yuri get on the motorcycle and they jump over the fence off a small ramp. Because they pointed a ramp at the gate to get out. Yeah. For some reason. You probably could have run and jumped off that yeah. ramp. The I'm surprised there's positioned. not more people doing it. <laughs> but yeah, so he, he gets Yuri on his bike and rides over a ramp and then we just cut immediately to an airplane yeah. landing in Los Angeles. You know what? I feel what that scene needed is at least a MacGyver distraction. Because the guards are just shooting at them the whole time that they're yeah. riding. And also, Yuri is being a very, shield. like, very suspicious. Like, when he's, like, looking around in every direction and then running to get on the bike and doing it as fast as he can and, like, freaking mm-hmm. out about it. It's like, just pretend like you're supposed to do this. And then we'll go and leave. Yeah. And no one will shoot at us. But that doesn't happen. But they get away. So, yeah. <laughs> it, so it everything works, works out. out. Um, so, yeah, right after the airplane lands, then we're, we're seeing... Yuri and MacGyver arrive at MacGyver's loft, mm-hmm. which at the moment has been completely covered in women's clothing. Yeah. And it's, and like Yuri asks, is there a Mrs. MacGyver? And he says, no, there is not. And um, then Yuri just starts making out with MacGyver. No, that's, <laughs> that's not what happens. And like, yeah, and like you hear someone like moving around in his bathroom and, and out pops Penny Parker in this kind of uh it's kind of jesse from toy story 2 costume yeah it's like it's like she works at uh golden corral or something yeah and uh she says she's a singing telegram though mm-hmm. which always i will never hear those words and not remember the girl from clue, clue. <laughs> i am your singing, singing telegram, telegram. bang <laughs> like my favorite part of that whole movie and so in the midst of all this like penny's like just rambling off all this stuff that's happened to her since we last saw her she says oh remember that job i got no well i didn't get it <laughs> yeah and then she talks and then about, she burned a place down yeah she burned some rodeo drive storefront down <laughs> um and then my guy this is the part that i hate she asked macgyver asked her how she got she got into the apartment and penny says oh your manager let me in when i told her i was your girlfriend and that i was pregnant yeah, and it's, it's like, like, did you have to go that far? Like, was yeah. she, she wasn't letting you in before when you said you were my girlfriend. You couldn't have just waited downstairs at the hardware store for me to get home. It, it, it was like it's like a really harsh thing to do. Like, especially it, since MacGyver has kind of a history of dating his building managers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like if she if he was in a relationship, you know, if this is Susan's new place, mm-hmm. and he was she was just like, well, I'm his girlfriend and I'm pregnant. And she's like, oh, good. Well, he's getting evicted. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, it could have gone sideways. Yeah. But it's also just like a, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like something Penny would do. It seems really kind of heartless. Yeah. Um. But Yuri is just, just yeah, enchanted yeah, yeah. by her. Yeah, and and Yuri is like uh, like mad now. MacGyver says, "You got this woman pregnant, and you won't marry her." And it's like, "Whoa, whoa!" He's like, "I'll marry her." Yeah, but but this is exactly the problems that Penny has created now. Yeah, and it's not just with Yuri; it's whoever else the building manager now has told. Yeah, or the building manager who was MacGyver's fiance. <laughs> yeah, who's now who has now left him, or is just like hanging from her closet upstairs. Oh gosh, <laughs> upstairs. <laughs> Very clearly at the top yeah, of the building. Yeah, he's got the, those, those greenhouse windows. Yeah. Um, uh, we kind of cut from this to uh, a man being tortured. Uh, you hear this loud music playing, but that's not what's, what he's being tortured to. They're actually, these hitmen are strapping these earphones onto him and just like playing really high decibel frequencies right. directly into his ears. Um, and the, I was telling you when we were watching it, every time I hear this particular song, 
I think of that Chips Ahoy commercial. Yeah. A thousand chips, delicious. Yeah, it's I don't it's it's like a Glenn Miller orchestra kind of. Uh, yeah, it's like a swing mm-hmm. kind of song. Uh, the the man being tortured is a federal agent named Robert Julian. Yeah. And uh, the hitman are curious to know because they see he seems to have information about this upcoming assassination attempt that's going to be happening. Right. And so. Vince and Lyle are the ones torturing him now. They're essentially they're making sure that he doesn't know anything or yeah. what he does know ends with him. Yeah. But there's a lot of cool uh actors in this scene. Yeah. So uh you know, there's the the two henchmen Vince and Lyle oddly enough Vince is played by Vincent. No, Vince is not. Oh, he's that's, not. That's 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 the joke. Oh, okay. Is that uh Lyle is played by Vincent Schiavelli. Oh, okay. Who I'm sure half at least not more of the listeners have seen a ton of things that he's in. Right. Um, he has some, like, you, you wrote some down some notable ones. Well, the the first one I was thinking of was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest just because the previous Yuri Dimitri episode was essentially a remake of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. So it's neat that we have, like, one of the patients from that movie appearing in this episode as henchman. Um, but he's also in Batman Returns. He's one of the penguins like evil clown characters which another one of the evil clown characters from from that movie was uh played by anthony delongas who a previous guest of the show who had trained michelle pfeiffer in all her whip work as catwoman and played piedra and yeah he was piedra in the assassin um and uh the other neat thing about this episode is that so much of it is about lyle here trying to kill penny parker which is that's kind of a uh, we'll we'll get into that more later, but he successfully kills her <laughs> yeah. in uh, a James Bond movie. Tomorrow, Tomorrow never dies. So, um, but somehow this time she's able to get away. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's if like the vendetta started all this time ago. Yeah, um, and you were saying that one of his his bigger things was the, the X Files episode that he was in. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of a lot of people that I know who love the X Files, like, yeah. they they always remember that episode. Yeah, it's the episode with the freak show. That's one of the reasons it stands out so much. Um, but yeah, Vincent Schiavelli plays like the guy who's got like the conjoined twin who leaves his, his body to go kill, kill people. Yeah. And he was in ghost. He was like the subway ghost. He's like, get off my train. Yeah. And like teaches, uh, Patrick Swayze how to manipulate objects. Uh, but he's great in a lot of stuff. He's also, I was just thinking he's in a couple of, um, other than one flew over the cuckoo's nest. He's in another Milos Foreman film. Um, death this Mushi. No, no. uh, it David. was uh, man in the moon. Okay. He's like the, he's That's the CBS thinking. executive producer. Okay. Or I can't remember which network it is. Whichever network aired uh, Michael Richards right. Fridays, he's the one who like tries to stand up and say, "Okay, everyone, what you've just experienced was a happening. This is all <laughs> planned." And then they come back from the commercial break, and he's like, "No, this wasn't planned. I don't care what they're telling you." <laughs> and then like he gets really upset. He's like, "No, the joke was that we were gonna say, it's all planned." And then and then he gets in a big fight with the network about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, that's the whole reason I went to Death of the Smoochie, because Schiavelli's in Death of the Smoochie, but Danny DeVito is the connection that I was trying to make to Milo's Foreman and Man on oh, the okay. Moon. Uh, I always think it's funny that Danny Danny DeVito is in uh, Man on the Moon playing Bob Zamuda because he was on Taxi with Andy Kaufman. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And so whenever they do this, the scenes on the set of Taxi, and like they have Christopher Lloyd playing himself, and mm-hmm. they have... Um, you know, the, all the other characters are playing themselves, but the Danny DeVito character just isn't on set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just like left him off because they're like, "Well, who's going to play Danny DeVito if Danny DeVito's already in this movie?" <laughs> but then the other the other character who is yeah, his name is Vince is Robert Donner, mm-hmm. who we'll see in uh, another uh, four no three more episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is his first appearance on MacGyver. Yeah, but yeah. he'll come back in Cleo Rocks, 
Serenity and MacGyver's Woman, which I think is a clip show. Mm. But I'm not 100% sure. Sounds like a good show. Yeah. <laughs> MacGyver's Women. I actually think it's on a lot of people's like worst episode list. So Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the, there's the, the fourth guy. There's a lot of people in this scene. Um, right, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, is another FBI agent named Derek who's played by Michael Ensign. Yes. And he is a great character actor who people probably remember Ghostbusters. Yeah, I think his best known role is as the hotel manager of the of the Sedgwick Hotel in Ghostbusters. He's the guy who who wants to know how much it's going to cost mm-hmm. for them to have caught Slimer, and then they say it's going to be four thousand dollars for entrapment and, and another thousand for containment of the beast, yeah. and and he just says five thousand dollars. I had no idea to be so much. I won't pay it. Oh, that's right. that's we fine. We can just put it right back. In. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> But uh, it's it's a really great character, and uh, essentially he's playing kind of the same character that the librarian character plays earlier in the movie. Yeah, Because yeah. they both like, are you the men from the university? Like they have the same like first line, and then they have the same like, oh, well, I didn't know you were guys going to be doing this, and then they're like, get out of here. Do you have an idea what this was? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and uh, he also appears as the neighbor in the movie House uh, with William Cat, um, not. Uh, not the Japanese house. Yeah, The yeah, William yeah. Cat comedy slash horror movie house. And I I know George Went was his neighbor. Uh, this is the neighbor on the other side. Or at least he lives in the neighborhood. He greets mm-hmm. he greets William Cat when he first moves into the house. But that movie also has um, former guest of the show Kay Lenz mm-hmm. as like uh, William Cat's ex-wife, who's like an actress or something in the movie. But yeah. you need to see that movie. I really need to see it. It's a good one. It's really cause, funny. Cause, I think there's a sequel, too. Because oddly enough, I've seen The Other House, yeah. which also has a cat. But not an actor named Cat. This an actual it's, cat. Yeah, right, the cat from the poster, <laughs> not William Cat of of uh, Carrie fame, and and uh, the greatest American hero fame. Yeah, of that fame. <laughs> <laughs> that quote unquote fame. Um, but uh, yeah, he also uh, in the movie Titanic, Michael Ensign plays uh, Guggenheim, and uh, and he's just overall he he plays a lot of rich people I think like mm-hmm. snooty rich guys I think well because he's just he's got those those features yeah and he like, also like the way he delivers his lines is mm-hmm. really great for that that sort of feel um so they're torturing Robert Julian with this high decibel sound right and in the meantime Penny's on her way to her job she's she's supposed to deliver a singing telegram to the Bluesteins for their fiftieth anniversary right and there it's it's some house in this neighborhood right but it like you said it looks like it's uh just um, just finished like party homes, like empty model houses. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. look like it's an actual neighborhood that people live in. There's no cars parked in the driveways. All the cars or all the houses have their trash cans out front. And... Yeah, I mean, even if it was garbage day, all the trash cans are perfectly placed. Yeah, and um, and and, and like they're all brand new, like classic metal garbage cans. It, it, Every single house in the entire subdivision has the exact same garage door, the same color house paint. Yeah. And there's no trees in any of the yards. Like, the landscaping isn't even finished. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it looks like some development that had just been finished. And uh, and so they were. it was, like, perfect opportunity to start filming something there. And also, as, as you explained, there's really no reason for them to be at this house at all. Right, because they have their other hideout, which is the old cannery, which would be a lot more private. Yeah. It'd be much easier to kill someone in private there yeah. than at this house that they broke into. Is mm-hmm. it somebody's house that lives there? Like, I mean, unless it's Robert Julian's house. Julian's house. Maybe. I mean, but there's almost nothing in his garage except for this equipment they brought themselves. Like, yeah. It just seems like this is very clearly an empty mm-hmm. house. It, it's all being used as a plot device to bring Penny there, bring to get involved Penny into the situation. Yeah. 
Um, she could just as easily have gotten lost at the cannery and ended up at the cannery. That's I believe I believe Penny would get lost. Yeah. Um, so the house that she shows up to um, in in looking for the Bluestein's house, she she can't remember the address and didn't write it down anywhere, evidently. Yeah. And so she comes to 2220? I think it was 2202. 2202. Yeah, 2220's where she goes uh, next time. And she doesn't even, like, necessarily pull up to this house and think, okay, this is the house. She just accidentally crashes it into the garbage cans that are not yeah. on the street. They're on the sidewalk. Right. She drives up onto the sidewalk and crashes <laughs> into these cans. Um, but she hears the music that the the hitmen are using to cover up uh, Julian's screaming. Right. Uh, so she goes, oh. And it's this old-style music, so she's like, oh, this is probably the music they right, played at their someone wedding. someone who was 50 years old would yeah. be listening to. Um, so, uh, you know, she basically breaks into the house almost like the door's unlocked but she just starts going in and snooping and the whole around. house looks empty yeah as she's walking around it but yeah then she just walks right into the into the garage assuming that this entire party is happening in the garage for yeah. some reason and and just breaks into her routine without noticing there are no women in the room uh -huh. for this wedding anniversary there's four guys one of whom is being tortured <laughs> and she sets her little Tape recorder, uh, tape recorder down on like the washer dryer and just starts singing a song about how great the guy is mm -hmm. and gets like three or four verses into this terrible song yeah before she sees what's happening and she's like you're not the blue steens and then they try and chase her down yeah uh, uh lyle yells get her vince but vince is like the one who's furthest away yeah like behind everybody like he has to like push get around the, the chair yeah so penny has plenty of time to escape she also knocks down a chair she Which, actually does a surprising job of slowing them down on her way out. Like, yeah, she locks like the door. she thinks super fast to get the chair there, get on the other side of the door, and then bolt the door. Like you would think mm -hmm. this person would just turn and run as fast right. as they could, but um, she gets a lot done. Almost, almost like they had written it and blocked it out before she did it. Yeah, <laughs> and she gets into. Oh, and she she borrowed MacGyver's jeep. That's another thing that uh, for oh, the yeah. job that we didn't mention yet. Um, and so when she crashes into these trash cans, she's crashing into them with. With MacGyver's Jeep. And then she also, in making her escape, throws it in reverse, which I think was intentional because she, she has a trash can underneath the front yeah, of her car. Yeah, she has to go into, she has to reverse. And she puts it in reverse and crashes into the bad guy's car, or at least a classic car that's parked out front. Yeah, yeah. And then pulls off into the street and drives off. Um, and Vince says he got her license plate number. Right. And then they hand it to the FBI agent, like, you're now yeah. you can solve this problem. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, they're going to go, because they already... They, oh, I, we didn't mention, because um, they're turning up the decibels on Julian. Right. And there's a scene where his, you hear his eardrums pop. Yeah. And it's so disturbing to me. That is one <laughs> of my biggest fears is hearing a noise that's so loud or having something happen to my eardrums that makes them pop. Yeah. Um, and Julian's not dead yet. He, he passes out from probably the pain and the, the, the ordeal. Yeah. Um, and so Vince and Lyle say, we're going to go t finish off Julian uh, while you track down the car. And so, but we still don't know, we still don't have everything yet. Like, we know that they're there to kill somebody. We don't know who yet. We know that they're worried about people finding out because it's an important thing and they got two feds involved. Yeah. So it's like, it's building up. There's a lot of build up right now. And so, um, at the same time, we're kind of covering the story with, um, MacGyver took Yuri to the Phoenix Foundation mm -hmm. in a cab because he doesn't have his car because yeah, yeah, yeah. Penny took it. And, uh, and Pete says that part of the, the point of this extraction is that um, uh, Yuri's father is in so, New York. Yeah, and I guess he's someone of importance. It, um, almost like Yuri's father is playing the part of um, uh, 
the the character from the previous episode that was like the Maria's father. Right, right, right. It kind of feels like that kind of story again, where he's a political dissident that has information on Russia, and they were getting his son out of the country to protect so that him. he would be safe. Yeah, exactly. And so they go, they're moving to reunite him with his father, and basically MacGyver is being put in charge of staying with him for the per right. the the full extent of this delivery. Yeah, somewhat reluctantly. It's not that he doesn't like Yuri. It's yeah. just that MacGyver was hoping to get some time off. And also Pete like recommended he take some time off after mm-hmm. getting back from Russia and then changed his mind and said, ah, oh, it's just one more day. You can take yeah. him to New York and we don't want to drop him off with like a rookie agent. Like, Joanne's just going to screw it up. Uh, she's only good She's only good for bunker she scams. Only, she's only good for scams and we don't have any more scam people right now. <laughs> we don't have any more villains from the 40s. <laughs> Uh, so MacGyver is coming back to his yeah. home in a taxi when uh, immediately uh, Penny pulls up, almost crashes his car in the in the process of pulling mm. up, and uh, and she's just babbling about yeah, what happened. She's just mumbling nonsense about everything that happened, stringing it all together into one run-on sentence. And uh, when she gets to the part about how she put his jeep in the wrong gear and crash it into another car yeah and then like macgyver freaks out but it wasn't in the wrong gear she right. just backed up too fast but um but she was like i thought they were gonna kill me but macgyver's just freaking out about how his jeep's been destroyed and mm-hmm. he th- he's pretty sure that she just misunderstood whatever was going on even yeah. though that's not really her mo typically yeah I mean, like she's... and every time she smiles she was still pretty aware of what was going on her the only problem that she had was that she maybe trusted people too much mm-hmm. but she was never like she was never an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and MacGyver is humoring her. Not humoring her is a bad word. He, he, he's taking it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Like he doesn't completely believe her, but she's so impassioned about it. She's upset. So he wants to comfort her and help her out. So she's going to take him back to the scene yeah. that she saw, but she can't remember the address. Cause MacGyver says, well, let's call the police. Like he's willing to believe her enough to, to call the police. Right. Um, so it's kind of a – it's really kind of a time-wasty scene because they drive all the way out to the wrong house, which which is the 2220. 22 but I'm pretty sure that they just went to the same house and that they literally just took the house numbers and switched them yeah. so that it could – they and then they just emptied the garage for the previous scene so that this scene, it's totally full of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they make it look like she just burst into someone else's garage because yeah. she's at the wrong house. Really, she's just – you know, six houses down the street. But but the they never. House. But the, we get no resolution. We never see them go to the wrong, the, the correct house. Right. So and, there's and, no reason for this whole scene where they go back out there. Exactly. You would think that they would notice that one house either didn't have trash cans out front, or that that one house had dented trash cans. Yeah. But. Or and debris from the car that got hit. I mean, yeah. you know, the, 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 it's it has no closure. There's no yeah. closure to the scene, and it doesn't advance the plot. Uh, so I just was like, well, whatever. Um. But uh, we transition from here to the old fish cannery where this all should have been happening. Yeah, the whole, the whole scene so far. It's, the only reason that they're at a house is because they couldn't explain why Penny Parker would bust into a fish cannery on accident mm-hmm. and start singing a song. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing Vince and Lyle fin- putting, you know, like, Lyle's putting the finishing touches on his voice-activated detonating device. So um, they required Derek to come in with a recording of their target to verify that the vice will trigger upon hearing his voice. Yeah. Uh, and but, it takes a second, but yeah, yeah. Well, all, like when it's not going off, I was all, it, it takes a second to make sure it's got the right voice. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I said it all through that episode. I'm sure you were like, I got it, Richard. I got, get it that you like these characters. But I really like the characters <laughs> of Vince and Lyle. I think that they're – because they say they worked together for 13 years, and I believe it. Because I also like the point that he makes because this is their first time dealing with the Colombians together. Yeah. And he says something along the lines of, in 13 years, have I ever failed you? And the guy's like, no, but these are Colombians. This is different. And it's like, I love that he's admitting that in 13 years, this guy's never made a mistake. That's yeah. how great he works. Yeah. And he's like, this corn piece got mustard on it. <laughs> yeah. Let's scrape, Let's scrape it off then. <laughs> but I like mustard. <laughs> <laughs> then why'd you tell me about it? Just excited, I guess. <laughs> none of that happened. Well, some of that happened. Some of that happened. Half of it, I would say, on average. And they also start complaining about Derek as he walks right, yeah. in. <laughs> I like that, too, that they don't have a filter. Like Michael Ensign's Derek character is coming in to see them, and they're making fun of him as he's walking into the room. But they don't go like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, or like yeah. apologize in any way. They're like, oh, hey, there he is hey, now. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> There's the guy. There's, who's my favorite idiot? <laughs> uh so Derek has the recording, which he got up close and personal to uh, who we will properly pronounce Estevez. And Vincent Schiavelli will properly pronounce Estevez. And Michael Ensign will properly pronounce Estevez. Yeah. But I'm trying to remember now. I think uh, Robert Donner says, like, Estevez. Or yeah, Estevez. Es- and Larson calls him uh, es- Estevez. Estevez, yeah. They keep calling him Estevez over, all, over the course of this episode. And it's like, that's not how, like... Emilio was famous here. I don't understand why you don't know yeah. how to say Estevez. Clearly, none of these actors are from California. Yeah. <laughs> these are all New York-based actors who who have not seen these names before. If you haven't seen Men at Work, what are you doing on MacGyver? Yeah, come on. Unacceptable. I love that he was credited as uh, Charlie Estevez in Machete Kills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Derek is in the recording. They test out the detonator on a wheelchair, which is... An odd choice, but will the, be important. The second chair kill this season. Yeah. After uh, Silent World. Um, and, uh, you know, so the bomb goes off, and they also get uh, the license plate information on MacGyver's Jeep and his address. Right. So now they, know, they at least know where MacGyver is. Um, they, and they, they say, well, if MacGyver's around, we'll kill him too. But they, just, they really just want the girl. Yeah. Who's Penny? Sorry. I said the girl. I'm not talking like they are. It's like, <laughs> we just want the girl. Uh, we then all of a sudden we're back at MacGyver's place, and Penny he, seems to have forgotten the whole about the whole ordeal because they they're in total relax mode. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they went to the police. It doesn't seem like anything like they've like MacGyver convinced Penny that it didn't happen. And yeah, that's that's the only that, reason. That is I can what explain. it feels like here. Yeah, she just she just seems to have dropped it completely. But yeah, they're curled up on the couch watching her mm-hmm. her first TV appearance, maybe yeah, or yeah. An, an early one at least. Yeah. And it's, you know, just, it's, she's literally has a scene where she's completely obscured in darkness, walking downstairs in between these cuts of an owl. Yeah, there's just an owl hooting, and then you see her running down some stairs, and it's, it's maybe one second, maybe two seconds shot. And MacGyver's like, that was it? And she's like, yeah. The director said I did great. He's like, yeah, good job. Let me make some more popcorn. (laughs) Um, And And then we cut to this yeah. news broadcast mm-hmm. her show is over the show owl hoots and lady, <laughs> lady descends stairs. The staircase <laughs> owl hoots and lady stairs next week on owl hoots and lady stairs <laughs> she's going up <laughs> uh yeah uh so it cuts to the news broadcast of estevez 
arriving in L.A. Who the reporter introduces as Estevez. Yeah. Um, he, we now know that he is a uh, Colombian, not whether he's a drug lord, but he is a man with information on the drug cartels of Colombia. Yeah. That he is going to testify and give information to the DEA yeah. on helping stop the drug trade or and, slow it down. And immediately Penny is freaking out because she recognized Michael Ensign over the corner yeah. of the bad guy's shoulder. Which right. she really had very little time to recognize this guy when she was in the garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she says that she has to study people for a living. Mm-hmm. And so that's why she recognizes him. Uh, so, and MacGyver, again, willing to believe her says well i'll have pete Pete's pull people. up the broadcast yeah which, which i feel like they could have actually just been like oh we were recording this because you were on television a second ago yeah uh, but maybe that wasn't such a popular practice at the time but i feel like it was in yeah, the late but, 80s to yeah, record television when, when was um scrooge was 88 right 87 88 well, anyway, they, they talk about recording stuff in Scrooge. Yeah. That's my that's my reference point. Yeah. <laughs> VCRs did not exist before Scrooge. Your entire timeline is based on things that happened in movies. Well, GPS wasn't invented yet because <laughs> it wasn't in nothing but trouble. But trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. If you're wondering about that, that was from the previous episode. <laughs> uh, so tune in last week to hear the previous episode. Uh, so... Uh, but, you know, so MacGyver says he's going to call Pete. And oddly enough, they never get to the tape. They keep bringing it up, but they never actually get to the point where she's going to see it. Because they keep, I don't know, they just keep stalling on the tape for some reason. Yeah. But the fact that um, Pe- uh, Penny says that she saw some guy who was trying to kill some guy who was associated with this Estevez um, got the attention of the FBI and the DEA. Yeah. They're like, okay, something, because... We, we find out that they are now they found Robert Julian's body now. Yeah. So but they, for some reason it never this never comes to fruition the whole I recognized Michael Ensign from this video. Yeah. Here's a picture of the guy who did it. Give this to the FBI. Tell them this is the guy who did it and show a photograph to the FBI. Exactly. Again, there it, it's like what is the point of having her even notice it on television? Mm-hmm. Just just to connect the, him to the suspect. Right. Um it would have you know would have been better? It would have been better had they reported the death of Robert Julian and showed a picture of him. And she goes, oh, that's the guy who was being tortured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they could... They'd well, have they don't made... even know what happened to Robert Julian yet, though. Well, they... Oh, they, they do the they, next they day. They did, like, the moment... Like, yeah. the next scene is is them at the Phoenix Foundation. Yeah, he says they found the body in, in Malibu Hills. Yeah. Which is like, where did you guys... Did you just left the body somewhere, like, on the street? Well, yeah, it was like... Or was it out, just out in the wilderness and some hikers found it? Or yeah, what? like, you don't even burn the body? <laughs> you're so scientific about popping his eardrums and you're not mm-hmm. even disposing of things properly. But, um, and they said, and Pete even says that his eardrums have been burst. Yeah. And so MacGyver pieces together, oh, well, this sounds like the situation that The Penny guy you saw with in. headphones on. And Yuri is in the room for all of this and he's just, seems disturbed by the image of this guy with wires coming out of his head. Yeah. And he's like, I've heard of torture from being from Russia because, you know, everyone in Russia is tortured constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like, I've never heard of a man with wires coming out of his ears. And it's like, we've well, heard a lot about torture and you haven't heard of that? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's a pretty common one. Like electric wires on your body seems yeah. like a standard. That's uh, that's a, almost a stereotypical torture. Um, uh, there's a total nothing scene in which Penny and Yuri talk about coming up with a new name for, for him and they decide on Biff. Right. That's literally all the attention I'm going to give that entire conversation. <laughs> Um, There's a subplot here that he's obsessed with American movies, 
that gets touched on occasionally. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really pay off, except for maybe in his final line. Yeah, and this is after Back to the Future, so I would think Biff would be a less popular name. Yeah, that makes you sound like the bad guy. I think they just wanted a super cheesy name that sounded like a strong person. Yeah. In in the wake of all this, the Phoenix Foundation has been hired to provide extra security. Yeah. And uh, we're also getting this briefing from another perspective where Derek is reporting to his superior at the federal building, uh, Mr. Larson, uh, saying that, you know, they hired the Phoenix Foundation because they found Julian dead. Um, they And Larson tells Derek that they have a woman who might be able to ID someone from it. And Derek says, well, we should get her to that footage. Again, bringing up the footage. Yeah. Um, and see if she can give us a lead. And yeah. we can find out who killed Julian. But also this exterior shot of the federal building, this is the same building that we were using in the first season as the exterior of DXS. DXS, yeah. So I just it, thought that's interesting that Michael Ensign and the FBI all work in the federal building. And it's like, wait, the FBI was in that building with DXS? Mm-hmm. That makes it even more government-oriented. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, all the while, Larson is, is sitting at his desk in this, in this scene. Right. Which you know, doesn't seem suspicious at all. But again, it's part of it's part of some like a little interesting twist that will happen a little yeah, bit yeah. later, uh, and uh, so Derek shows up with uh, Lyle and Vince uh, at the cannery again and informs them that they've changed because of security and all the and Julian's death. They decided to change the venue for the conference. Right to, now to it's city the city hall, hall. and uh, so he gives them. I, I'm assuming he's giving some kind of clearance badges to them. Yeah. Because uh, he hands them, like, an envelope. For them to work it with the custodial service or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Vince is telling him, well, just make sure you do your end and plant the bomb. And, he's, and Derek's like, oh, don't worry, I already planted it. It's done. And so Vince and Lyle are like, oh, great. Oh, well, that's wonderful. That saves <laughs> us a trip today. Yeah. And so they're, they're so happy. And they says, well, okay, then. And then Vince just pulls a gun and shoots Michael Ensign. Because evidently Derek. the Colombians instructed them to kill him as soon as everything was put in place. Yeah. Which I don't know why he wouldn't have suspected that anyway. Yeah. It, I also wouldn't tell them that I put the bomb there until the last possible second. Yeah. If I didn't have to. That, that's that's kind of your your protection. Yeah. Because they can't do anything. The until... only thing that's special about you is you can get close enough to place the bomb. Exactly. Maybe he did it in that last scene where he's standing behind him at the desk. Well, I think that was the whole purpose of that scene. Yeah. Is is to indicate that they that he is he can get close to Larson so you connect the dots later on. Yeah, yeah. Uh And then so the next the next you know that's where you know it, it, it that act closes and we come to the next after the commercial with uh Mac and Penny coming back to the apartment and the phone rings and it's a call for Penny. And it's from the the carob uh, dishwashing uh, detergent. It makes your hands feel as soft as rose petals. Yeah. And it is the only connection that I can connect get to the title of the episode. Yeah, I have no idea why this is called Soft Touch unless it's a specific reference to a carob dishwashing campaign. Yeah, it's it, like because she's super excited to get this job. And you, just like I did, felt that this was like a fake call. Like this yeah, was, I thought this was a bait and switch. Like they were... We're going to call you in for an audition, and then when you show up, we're going to kill you. Like, somehow yeah. they figured out she was an actress. Um, <laughs> but it turns out to be a real job offer. Yeah, it's a real job offer um, that's happening at the same time, just coincidentally. Yeah. That lures her out of the house, and Yuri's going with her for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, Yuri all of a sudden shows up at the apartment because he got lost trying to go to the bathroom. And Is that what he says? Yeah. He, <sighs> that's <laughs> such bad writing. I, I, I love Elia Baskin, but his character and 
is just not essential to this episode. Yeah, there's if you completely took him out of every scene, it would still make sense. Yeah. But, I mean, obviously, any excuse to have him in the episode is, is a worthwhile thing. Yeah, but yeah. script-wise, there's no reason for this character. I would rather he was in this episode playing Penny Parker. Mm-hmm. But um, we also... You you were saying it was eighteen dollars was the taxi fee from the airport to the yeah, hardware yeah, store. Yeah. So if you paid eighteen dollars to get from LAX to Santa Monica, mm-hmm. which is like a ten minute drive, yeah. it only costs four fifty to get from Phoenix Foundation to the hardware store. Right. So it's conceivable that he got lost on his way to the bathroom and walked the whole way to MacGyver's house because it's yeah. right around the corner. Exactly. Yeah. He he wouldn't have he would have gotten lost and then taken a cab to the bathroom, please. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you're in it <laughs> get it you're in it all right you're in uh so uh yuri yuri okay no um no. the phone rings again <laughs> <laughs> and the phone rings again and this time it's pete and the guy was already mad and he yells at the phone yes! hello i'm sorry pete uh and uh he's telling pete's telling him that yuri's gone missing i know don't worry he's here but yuri and Penny just kind of like go leave eh. while he's on the phone. Yeah, they just like and like he yells to have them wait downstairs, and uh, and like you know like Pete's gonna you know Yuri's gonna be brought back by MacGyver. He's gonna bring him back. Yeah. So as soon as MacGyver walks out, or well, as soon as Penny and Yuri walk out, they're grabbed by Vincent Lyle and who are following up on their their trace of the license plate number. Right. And they had to grab Yuri too, probably assuming that he was MacGyver. Yeah. Um. You know they, they just wish she's with a guy. And uh, and so they toss him into the back of a of just a black unmarked van, and just as MacGyver walks out, Penny's struggling like to get away, and she manages to get the door open and scream for help. And uh, so the van's driving down the road. It's already yeah, it's like, maybe a hundred feet away right now yeah. when she's shouting MacGyver's name out. Yeah, and it's still driving away at like fifteen miles an hour. She gets MacGyver's attention right as he's coming out, so he runs to his car. It's a flare. A couple seconds pass. He gets a flare. He lights the flare. A couple more seconds pass. He turns around. This car has to be at least a block away. Yeah. And, and he throws the flare as hard as he can, and somehow it lands perfectly on the roof of this mm-hmm. van. And it's serving as a sort of marker for him yeah. to follow the van. But it's, it's a big black van with a roof rack. Like, just follow yeah. the van. I don't yeah, understand exactly. what this flare is for. Yeah, if it were nighttime, maybe that would make a difference? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. But otherwise, there's no reason for this. You're uh, not following them in a helicopter. You're following them in a car. So you, if you can't see the van, then you won't see the flare. Mm-hmm. And if you can see the van, then you can see the van. And, so just and, chase it. Yeah. The, the, the whole purpose of this is so that my, MacGyver can follow them discreetly. Yeah. Because they know his car. So uh, he can't just like... And he can't do the drive around and follow them from the front because they would see him. So... He has to hang back, but yeah, it's it's not a good device. But somehow it enables him to follow them the whole way to the cannery, mm-hmm. and um, and they're walked through this abandoned uh, tuna cannery yeah. to their giant walk-in freezer. Right. So, but here, like we were talking about this earlier, MacGyver has to get in because he can't get in through the same door that they get in. So he jumps and grabs this fire escape ladder. Right. And it looks like it should have fallen loose when he jumps up to grab yeah. it. But it's actually Richard Dean Anderson doing all this stunt work. Yeah. It looks pretty awesome. Yeah. he Richard Dean Anderson actually grabs onto the ladder, 
pulls his legs pulls up his over legs head. up and then is able to then stomach crunch his way up to yeah. it's like I mean I assume they did that in one take cuz I don't know how many takes of that I could do. Yeah. Um but um but yeah I was also wondering like why doesn't that ladder fall? Aren't they supposed to like be weight counterbalanced and and come down? When you pull on them. Well, yeah. I was so terrified when he was, like, upside down that the whole thing was going to fall and that he was just going to be, like, hanging by his legs and just hit the bottom of it. And then I was watching it with my wife, and she was freaking out because he grabs onto the bars above where they run through the pulley yeah. to go down. And she was like, that's all metal. Like, if this thing broke loose now, his hand would run right through a metal pulley. Ugh. Meat grinder. But somehow none of it moves none, I mean, yeah, I'm sure none, they none of that happens. locked it in place for the show but it just doesn't seem like that's how they're supposed to work yeah um so like you know penny is trying to convince uh lyle you know to let her go <laughs> it's, it's and then really, she's not going to say anything yeah it's, it's a really great line she's just like promise i won't talk and like sweetheart you do nothing but talk <laughs> <laughs> they're already tired of her yeah um they took one drive uh, and, uh, yeah, that's when they bring him over to the freezer and we couldn't decide if this place is operating or not. Well, I mean, the lights are on. Yeah. I, I'm assuming they, fish. yeah, there, that's the, that's the thing that confuses me is that this freezer, this walk-in freezer that they, they, they put Yuri and, and Penny in is full of fish and like boxed up cans uh-huh. and it's just like, yeah, then maybe this just isn't an empty building like or maybe right. it's like a lights off like the the earliest possible like lights off factory that's run entirely by robots yeah uh or it, maybe it's the weekend and they're closed i don't i don't know yeah. it there's no one else around yeah and but there's still clearly signs that this place is operating um uh, so they throw them in the freezer and uh you know put a big old master lock on there and uh and walk away and macgyver so macgyver kind of like comes in to uh try to pry the lock open and he 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 does the the classic macgyver back to the door move the, yeah yeah he does yeah, yeah, yeah. he like jiggles the lock and he turns around uh, thrusts his yeah, thrusts his elbows to the door spins around and slams the door that he that, that is like his frustrated can't open the door yeah move. the patented spin and slam um and like i said he tries to pry it open but he can't he probably could if he tried a little harder and uh, if he used something with more torque, he's using like a ten inch pipe. Yeah. And then he goes and grabs like a six foot one to do this whole MacGyverism with. Mm-hmm. But he's using the the worst possible tool to break this lock just yeah. by hand. And so, then he starts putting together almost the exact same ingredients he used for a thermite torch in right? season one, episode seven, The Last Stand. Yeah, and it's the same situation with someone trapped in a freezer. Not that he used the torch for. Yeah. But it's another breaking situation. a lock off a door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um and so he sees this just demolished wheelchair mm-hmm. and he takes the wheels off of it because somehow he knows that the framework of this wheel is all magnesium mm-hmm. and it's like a hundred percent magnesium yeah it's not and, like an alloy it's 100 percent magnesium and he could just tap it out as easily as yeah just like, it's as brittle as glass and somehow the weight of a handicapped person is supposed to rest on wheels made of this mm-hmm. um but he he smashes out all the magnesium and crumbles it up into a can which in last stand he took magnesium he filed it out of a bike mm-hmm. and then he scraped iron oxide off of a can so he yeah. gets this big rusty can and i'm thinking okay here's the iron oxide right. he's gonna get he doesn't even use it for that he just puts all the magnesium in there so he can like mash it up more yeah and, and it's in this and it's not even really mashed up all that much like it's the, still big chunks of it yeah the bike the bike and the iron oxide were fine powders that were mixed yeah that makes sense 
This is just like this trying is, to set fire. And this isn't even magnesium mixed with anything. This is yeah. just magnesium. Which which you can light, but not with a match. Yeah. He he just takes a, a like a normal cigarette smoking match, and it just shoots yeah. off into into bright burning sparks. And he's not using it to melt the lock. He's not using it to melt the door handle. He's using it to heat the lock to the point where the lock would just open on itself. Right. And and my wife was saying, like, if magnesium is that easy to light, why would they make wheelchairs out of it? Like, this whole thing would just explode if someone dropped a cigarette near him. <laughs> insert insert um, footage from Red Dragon of the wheelchair on fire with Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> yeah, just rolling down the street, <laughs> crashing into a car. Um, but yeah, so he should have made a thermite torch here and he could have used the same ingredients that he did in last stand, but Mm -hmm. instead he's just heating up a pipe to make it expand and break this lock. Right. And somehow not burning his hands off because even the thermite torch he put in another pipe to insulate him from the heat. heat. But here, here he's just holding right onto it. Uh, Um, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. And he breaks the lock off the door and he opens it. So Yuri and yeah. and as soon as he gets the lock off the door, the entire, like, door locking mechanism just kind of falls off the door anyway. Yeah. So I, I really think he could have just, like... Pried the whole thing off. Yeah, just smacked it a couple of times and it would have come off. Yeah. Um, and so they, as soon as they come out, MacGyver's taking a look around. He, see, you know, he sees the wheelchair. He sees, like, all the electronic equipment. And he finds, like, a tape recorder with uh, Lyle's sample voice triggering right. a, another Lyle set. Detonation that's, test. Yeah, so he sees a machine that recognizes Lyle's voice. Mm. And even the voice that's playing on the thing is like, I invented a thing that will explode when it recognizes a voice. Yeah. This is a test of it, and I am giving needless information into a tape recorder that can be used as evidence against me. Yeah. And, uh, and your wife also brought up the fact that um, Penny and Yuri overhear exactly the plan that Vince and Lyle are at 4 p.m. are going to go to City Hall dressed as custodial workers and plant the bomb. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Penny reels it off like it's like, I don't know. All I know is they said something about how at 4 o'clock they're going to attempt to assassinate Estevez. At City Hall. <laughs> yeah. And and it's just like, and That's, then Yuri goes, oh, and there's something about custodial workers. It's yeah. just like, you, they, they, why are you acting like it's so vague? They you know exactly what they told said. you. Um, so now they have to rush over to City Hall, and at this point, Estevez and Larson are arriving pretty much at the same time. Yeah. They escort Estevez in first, um, and Larson arrives in a big van, and we see for the first time that the reason Larson was sitting down at the federal building is that he's in a wheelchair. And so now we're starting to put the pieces together of why they were using a wheelchair test, and why Michael Ensign was required to plant the bomb and where. Yeah, because this guy was going to be right next to Estevez when he gives this speech. I'm, I feel like I want to say it the way they say it in the episode as a joke, but that it's going to be misinterpreted as me thinking that's the accurate yeah. way to say it. It's we'll, Estevez. We'll call him Mr. E. Mr. E. <laughs> I was changing Miss, Mrs. F. I know what you did. Last summer. Uh... uh but it's also really unclear why Vince and Lyle are even going there. Right. I mean, in theory, yes, if their bomb doesn't go off, they'll be in trouble. But their 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 backup plan is just to go in and shoot him. Yeah. And and it's like, well, yeah, I guess that could be your backup plan. 
could also be plan A. It's a lot less work than inventing technology that records and recognizes voices. Or or even better, have a backup detonator where you can just push the button and blow them up. Yeah, if you were already going to bring guns into the room where the person you're going to try and kill is, why needlessly involve an FBI agent who might be tricking you? Yeah. But that's not how it works. No, no, it works exactly how how it plans in the script. Um, MacGyver and Penny get there just in time to give Pete enough pertinent information that he's able to shout, don't say anything, it's a voice-activated bomb, before Estevez can begin a speech. Yeah, MacGyver goes up to the, the microphone equipment and just turns the gain up on everything, and this so you get nothing but incredible feedback. Yeah, and everyone's ears pop. <laughs> it only takes 150 decibels, according to Lyle. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they... they, they go after Larson, so Lyle's forced to try to, to shoot uh, at Estevez. And MacGyver yanks the speaker off a wall, which drops right in front of Lyle mm. and knocks the gun out of his hand. And then he's grabbed pretty quickly. Yeah, Vince Vince tries to run and MacGyver lassos him with a cord. And, and then he drops his gun. Yeah, Lyle tries to go for the gun, but Penny kicks it over to Yuri, who then like picks it up and does like the Dirty Harry, if you lucky. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of it. That's the, the the day is saved at that point. Like uh, the, the this is and like the Yuri first. just says like, oh, if America's this exciting, who needs the movies mm-hmm. or something like yeah, that? Yeah, all you need is Penny Parker. Yeah, wah, such a wah. cheesy finish. Um, yeah, this is like the first like episode in why we haven't had a fifth act. Like that's button. true. Yeah, like, they didn't. He doesn't cook any dinner for them. What, yeah. What's your problem, MacGyver? Jeez, after all that, he still isn't going on vacation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. There's so much stuff in this episode that doesn't make sense yeah. for the sake of making the episode work. I think that they wanted to do another Penny Parker episode, and they wanted to do another Yuri episode, and scheduling didn't work out. So they had to combine them at, into one episode, even though Yuri doesn't make any sense for this episode. Yeah. And what they did was just make the next episode with nobody. <laughs> like The next episode is so bad. <laughs> Pirates or not pirates? The birthday. Birthday is such a bad episode. Uh, and it's next week. So tune in next week. So yeah, but um, but I I really feel like maybe that was supposed to be like when they were going to shoot the Yuri episode, and he's like, mm. well, look, something came up, and I can't do it. I'd love to be there, and they were like, well, no, we'll just add you to every scene of this episode. Yeah, needlessly. And, and then and they're like, well, what do you do about next week? And it's like, ah. Uh, We'll figure something out. Yeah. It's, and then they forgot to figure anything out. And they have him in a scene by saying, I got lost going to the bathroom. Yeah. And, and like, just Penny Parker going to the house. All, all this stuff that just doesn't need to, to be the way it is in order to make and, sure. I, and I feel connected. like if it was just a simple mix-up, like, it would have been easier to work out a way that Penny Parker stumbles upon this plot and then the plot gets shut down. Yeah. Like, that, that, that is a premise by itself works i can see that as an episode mm-hmm. and i i don't think it strays that far from the character of penny that we know but the way that it plays out with them needlessly being in this like track housing that is completely irrelevant yeah, to and, the the, and that they don't lock the doors of yeah they're torturing an fbi agent in a house and the all the doors are open and they're doing it loud enough that you can hear it from outside mm-hmm. and beyond that just involving Yuri Dimitri in an episode that really doesn't have a place for him. Yeah. Um, it just reminds me of like how when they asked Sigourney Weaver, like, oh, are you going to be in the next Ghostbusters movie? And she's like, 
well, I will if there's a reason for Dana Barrett to be in the movie. But yeah. if there isn't, it's like the the only reason she's in the second one is because for no reason this stuff decided to haunt her mm-hmm. specifically again this time. And she's like, I feel like people would get over that if they made a third Ghostbusters movie. And for yeah. some reason, I'm the only one being haunted again. Yeah, and it's she's the only one in New York City with a baby. Yeah. <laughs> At least the only one that Yanusha wants anything yeah. to do with. And speaking of Ghostbusters, I actually had a chance to speak with Derek himself, Michael Ensign. Why don't we play that for you now? Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, nice to speak with you. How did you first get involved with acting in film and television? Well, I think it goes back to playing uh, a slightly overweight Purple Rabbit when I was 12 in a church Christmas play. Okay. And that started the ball rolling, and I decided that was what I wanted to be, and from that point onwards, I was just finding a way through it. Sure. Um, I... I have a, a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah, which was quite a theater school. Still is, but especially back then, it was a very, very good theater school. And then I went uh, and did graduate work at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., but I wanted to go back to my, my British roots and uh, go to study in England. So I went to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Okay. Um, and then when I came out of that, I began, as any other English actor would be, and working in the theater and doing lots of plays and whatever. But I began to be more and more fascinated with film. And very fortunately for me, I began to do some commercials uh, with Alan Parker, the, the prominent uh, British director. Sure, yeah. And uh, so I... I began working with him and doing doing this and that, and that led um, to the film stuff. Um, and I was very fortunate in 1972 to be cast in a um, British television series called Colditz. Uh, and that was the first TV work I did other than commercials. And uh, that was, again, very fortunate for me because it, it went on for years, and, I mean, it was became very well known sure. um, and is now even still quite famous. So that started the TV stuff. And then I pissed off my agents royally when I announced <laughs> that I, I wanted to go into the Royal Shakespeare company on an audition for them over a period of time. And it was eventually accepted. And they were, the agents were very annoyed because I was just beginning to have the ball rolling with film and television. Sure. And they could make a lot more money than, off of me doing that than having me tied up for what turned out to be almost three years in the Royal Shakespeare Company. But that was a very, very important uh, thing for me in my career. Sure. Was, uh, you know, the finest company in the in the world uh, doing the plays of the greatest uh, English-language playwright. Yeah, absolutely. So after that, I continued to do commercials um, and other plays, including... Um, uh, a play which was um, uh, called The Red Devil Battery Sign. Um, it was a late Tennessee Williams play. And the reason I wanted to be in that as much as anything was that Tennessee was involved with it. Oh, wow. So I had the opportunity of being in one of his plays with him there at every rehearsal, and uh, uh, it was wonderful because the, what was going on Offstage was far more interesting, actually, than the play. Right? Because <laughs> where Tennessee went followed chaos. 
Um, but I did that. And while I was doing that, Alan Parker, uh, we were playing, by this point, we were playing in the West End at the Phoenix Theater. And I remember him calling me backstage. Um, and uh, he said, I... Uh, it was between a matinee and evening performance, and I, I, he got hold of me, and he said, Michael, I'm doing this movie called Midnight Express, and I've got a party for you. You want to do it? <laughs> and I said, of course. And he said, oh, no, mate, we're doing a play. I said, I want to do it. I'll be there. I said, we're filming it in Malta. I said, I'll be there. Alan, I'll burn the theater down, but I'll be there. <laughs> Um, and I knew that the play was in trouble, and, and uh, very shortly after, it closed. So I was able to go to Malta and do the first significant film part I, I had, and that gave me a taste for it. Um, then I came back from Malta and went in as the first replacement for the leading man in a West End uh, musical, uh, Irene, an old uh, musical, and that was fun. Uh, um, how many times do you get to stand in an arc follow spot, spotlight and sing a love song in white tie and tails with a 28-piece orchestra? Yeah. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, but when I came out of that, I was at a, a crossroads because I could see that uh, things were bad in England. They're, they're, in England, if you throw a rock, you'll hit a good actor. Yeah. Uh, so I had wanted to do certain things theatrically and film and television-wise, but what appeared to be happening was that they finally discovered how to use me, which was I would be doing uh, takeover roles in American musicals. Uh, I might not open the show, but I would be the, the first takeover, as I had in Irene. And I really didn't feel like that's what I wanted to do. Sure. Midnight Express, by that point, was um, getting a lot of publicity, including a nomination for Best Picture uh, for that year. Yeah. And I thought, well, if you're going to go to Hollywood, you might as well go when you're in a movie that's up for Best Picture. <laughs> and so I, I got on a plane, and well, before I did that, I called Alan Parker uh, Film Company, and got their advice. They, they acted kind of as a mentor for me, especially um, Michael Marshall, the, the producer that Alan worked with a great deal. And I talked to him about it, and he said, well, you know, think of it this way. You can do it now. Who's to say in six months whether we can, you know, will you even be alive? So go ahead and do it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I said, okay. And he said, but you need film on you. And I said, huh? <laughs> and uh, he, so he, he called down, and they, they pulled every scrap of stuff I had done for them and put it on a 35-millimeter reel. Okay. And uh, so I got on a plane with that tucked under my arm and a couple of phone numbers, and I came to Hollywood. Um, I had no, you know, real contacts. And one of those phone numbers was uh, the agent, the um, casting director who had cast um, the Americans uh, for Midnight Express. I, I was cast out of London, of course. Oh, okay. But um, Penny Perry, who's uh, still still working, very uh, an amazing woman. Sure. And I uh, I went to see her, and she not only was she encouraging, she was able through her contacts to quickly put me with an agent and 
Within three weeks, I was testing for a pilot of a TV series. Um, I was offered uh, two plays, and I, I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? This is, <laughs> this is not the typical Hollywood story. This is going too fast. Yeah, uh-huh. This is, you know, I mean, maybe a star get this, but I'm, you know, I'm a good, solid working actor with a reputation and film on me, but this is not how it usually plays out. So I didn't get the pilot. I chose to do one of the two plays because it would keep me in town. I did that for 16 weeks with William Shatner. Oh, nice. And uh, then it was over. <laughs> and I got Hollywood, <laughs> the real Hollywood. But I've always said that um, I, um, I have the perfect story for sitting on a, on a couch on a TV show being interviewed about, about uh, my career I was uh, in a, a crappy apartment in North Hollywood with uh, Motel 6 furniture. Sure. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm in my underwear, ironing, ironing a shirt, watching the, uh, the Oscars on a rented black-and-white TV. <laughs> and up came me and one of my scenes with Brad Davis representing Midnight Express for Best Picture. Yeah. So there's the Hollywood glamour. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> and, of course, Midnight Express didn't win, but I got my revenge. I'm now a member of the Academy, and I was in Titanic, and it did win. Yeah. So there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but anyway, that's what brought me over to, to California. And I began doing what I, what I always do, which is I consider myself a good working actor, a good supporting actor, um, and I don't know if you're aware of the old, uh, mainly Western movie star, Andy Devine, or character actor. I, I don't know that I am. He was, he, about this. He, was, he was in lots and lots and lots of movies in the 1940s, even into the 1950s, 1930s, and he was sort of a go-to character actor, and he was once quoted as, as saying, um, uh, I was, he was talking about shot. He said, I, I was never the first one through the door, but I lent a hell of a lot of money to the ones who were. Yeah. And so Andy Devine kept working, and that's what I've tried to do. Um, and it's, it's, it's been very satisfying. Uh, I got going. Fortunately, I had good, re I eventually got very good representation. Hollywood is closed unless you have um, a good agent. Yeah. Um, the, gate, the gatekeepers are the, the agents and the casting directors. So you're, it's not a place where you can go and ring up somebody and say, hello, I'm Michael Ensign, I'm an actor, do you have any work going? That, that, that's, not, that's not how it works yeah. at all. So... Um, with good representation, with good relationships with casting directors. And especially back then, um, there was a, a lot of production, and apparently I was, I was useful. And that's what I've always tried to be. I've tried to be uh, – I've, I've tried to do a good job in a variety of ways um, and by playing all sorts of different kinds of parts. Uh, accents, all that kind of thing. And that goes back to the theater training in England, not just at drama school. But I, by the time I came over here, I had done approximately 100 professional plays. Oh, wow. 
Uh, and that's a lot of English repertory theater where uh, we, sometimes you're doing a new play every two weeks. Um, and sometimes you get a good part, sometimes a bad part, parts you're right for, parts you're wrong for. But it develops a really good foundation of lots and lots of things. So I found that useful um, over here in being able to do variety of accents, for example. And uh, it was interesting that one time I was, I was up in Van, again up in Vancouver, um, doing something on Wise Guy where I was playing a French diplomat. Okay. And as far as I was concerned, I was giving my best, you know, Pepe Le Pew French <laughs> accent. Um, but there was a French-Canadian crew member, and he came up to me and he, started speaking to me in French, which I kind of understand. I'm not very good at it, but I can understand. And he was saying he was very pleased that they'd hired, you know, a real French actor to play this. <laughs> He's so sick and tired of listening to Americans or Canadians ruin it and blah, blah, blah. And I just sort of smiled and said, oui. And, <laughs> and then excused myself fast so I wouldn't have to speak French with it. Uh, so I guess my Pepe Le Pew worked. Uh, but I... I've, I've been able to have a little bag of tricks like that to, to help. Um, I'm not sure whether I'm right on this, but um, the styles of acting, uh, I mean, a good actor is a good actor whenever they work. But uh, what is wanted from the industry, especially in television, shifts. And I think about every 10, 20 years, um, one has to be quick to understand what they're looking for now. Sure. Um, and everything, and this is a gross cliche, so <laughs> I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I think at the moment everybody wants it to be like a film, like very realistic. Sure, very yeah. Well, very naturalistic. And that's not always been the case. Um, not that you would want to do something phony, but when I first came to Hollywood, I found that a lot of my theatrical devices and background uh, really, really played off because I was able to use things that were, uh, I'm, I'm not saying the art of gross acting, though maybe that's what I was doing. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think some of the more theatrical approaches uh, were what they wanted. Sure, yeah. And since I had such a theatrical training, I fit right in. I did all the Star Treks, um, TV stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was going through. It looked like you had at least an appearance on like every incarnation. Yeah, of the every series. every every one of them. And and it was great because they wanted actors who had theater training, because we know how to put on costumes and and crazy makeups, but make it our own. Yeah, you're not going to act naturalistically now. In, in situations like that. There has to be a, a sense of theatricality and, and how to make it your own. And that comes from doing period dramas and costumes and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, somebody who is very, very naturalistic in their acting and could really in many ways only play themselves. That makes uh, sense. And, and didn't know how to create a character would have a hard time with that. So as a character actor, I, I create characters. And hopefully, yeah, I'm the same guy, but sometimes 
you're different. Um, and I've, I've often said that my autobiography, I'm going to write an autobiography and it's going to be called, oh, were you in that? <laughs> because I want to be able to blend in in such a way that you would not be necessarily knowing that it's me. And sure. maybe then you discover that. For me, that's, that's great acting. For some people, that, that's not what they do. They, they do their thing. Well, what role would you say you're most recognized for? I think anything that had the most uh, visibility, even though lots of it was cut out, I think uh, for a long time it was, um, it was Mr. Guggenheim from Titanic. Yeah. Um, I last year went over to the Comic-Con thing in London, and um, they, had all of, they had stuff from all, my, all the Star Treks and stuff like that. Sure. And Titanic. But the thing that they were all so excited about was Ghostbusters. Right. Yeah. So they were because it was the the uh, what the 30th anniversary of Ghostbusters. Oh yeah. So they, yeah. Were, they were all lining up for that. So um, that still um, and and certainly some of the Star Trek stuff. I I, I was doing a, a part in the remake of Born Yesterday, and I was we were in Washington D.C. and we were walking down to the Willard Hotel on the street and. Uh, dressed in a morning suit and you know very very elegantly dressed sure. and walked by some some women and as I walked by they said oh my god it's Corolla and <laughs> that was the part I played on Star Trek and buried under three and a half hours of makeup but they knew me <laughs> and, and you know Trekkies are the most devoted fans and they you know I've been stopped many times over the Star Trek stuff but. <laughs> they know it so much better than I do. Um, and saying, why'd you do that? What, what was the reason being, and, and I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it. I don't necessarily know exactly why. Um, uh, prior to your MacGyver roles, you had actually appeared with Dana Elkar in uh, 1984's All of Me. I was curious if you had a chance to reconnect with him on the MacGyver set. Yes, I did. And may I say, he is one, he is one of the nicest actors I ever worked with. Unfortunately, he's gone now. Yeah. And it was very tragic that he went blind. And, uh, but I, I felt that he had such an, uh, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to, to, I think I met him once after all these, these things were happening to him. But again, he was not a person to be self-pitying or, um, do anything but be quite upbeat and optimistic. Yeah, um, he was a um, he was a really fine actor and and a really fine person. Yeah, so he I, it was a privilege to work with him. All of me was fun. Yeah, uh, it was also a little maddening to me. <laughs> Why? Because I um, they they had to rewrite some stuff that would have included a little bit more for me to do. I don't remember now who the the uh, love interest for Steve was. The other, the the, the kind of girlfriend. Right, right. Um, but she, uh, I'm about the second week of filming, went out and was playing softball, and she got hit by a ball, Uh-oh. and she was in a cast. Uh, her leg, she had to be wearing a cast, and so it was scurrying around, rewriting a lot of stuff that have, would have included her. And some of that included me because, of course, 
I was Mr. Hypocrite. Right. Um, and part of that hypocrisy involved getting involved with her. <laughs> but that, of course, had to go away. And actually, Dana got got that one. Uh, not with her, but with a with another actress that they 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 rewrote it so yeah. somebody older could do it. Um, but that was an amazing experience. I mean, how many times in this life are you going to be able to go and show up on set with Lily Tomlin, Steve Martin, um, Carl Reiner, um, and and it just the people who were there who were you know, really old pros connected with that production and just show up and listen to story. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a, a joy. And Steve has been very, very good to me. Um, I was in that. And then he had a, a, a series. It was George Burns Presents, I think it was called, where they'd have George Burns just kind of introduce things, but it was an anthology uh, comedy series. Sure. Uh, I think it was George Burns' comedy hours, and I, I'd have to look and look it up. Um, and Steve was one of the producers, and he brought me in, and I, I, I did a couple of episodes on that. And then, of course, I worked with Steve again in bringing down the house. Yeah. Um, and I, I told him that I, uh, I reminded him that 20 years before, I had played this boss in a law firm, and now I was playing this boss in a law firm 20 years later. <laughs> in, uh, in your first MacGyver appearance, you play a mole who's aiding the assassination of a Colombian official. Um, did you audition for that role? I auditioned for just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gotten worse. Uh, I've sometimes... Um, when when you go in for an audition and you go into a room, especially at my age now, and I look around the room and I see the most amazing older actors and people who have had far grander careers than I have, and we're all together and they're still having to audition. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not I'm not being grand or anything, but they they make you audition for everything. Sure. Do you have any fun stories from the set of that first episode? Yes. <laughs> I've, 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 you know, I've sort of made a career out of sometimes the characters, uh, of giving exposition. Um, sure. I, I'm always very happy if I get a role where I don't have to do that, but yeah. most of the time you do. Um, but in that one, I, I was continuing my, um, second villain position a lot. Yeah. Where, the idea is that at the very beginning of something, you kind of expect that I'm the villain. And then, of course, it pans out that I'm not. There's another villain, the, yeah, yeah. the major villain, and, and I'm the secondary. And, but the, the fun part of that one was when, they, when I was killed and they put me in the freezer. Yeah. Uh, I was on. Those were real dead fish. Those were real oh, frozen no. fish. And I had to lie in that freezing cold with real dead, you know, frozen fish. So it, that was actually a refrigerated room with dead fish? Yeah. Oh, wow. And, uh, I mean, I got through it, but it was, <laughs> that was, that was kind of, it was kind of, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're in there with those fish. Uh, but that was, um, that was fun. Um, I, look, I'm, I'm one of these people who love doing what I do. I don't like a lot of show busy stuff and I don't like to, and, and, and it's hard to get a job, but the actual doing of the work I, I enjoy. 
Yeah. I, I'm not wild about watching it. <laughs> uh, I I watch something and I I say, wow, I wouldn't hire him. Um, and I dislike everything I do, so I try not to watch my own stuff. But the actual doing of it is is a great joy. Um, as an enormous fan of Ghostbusters, I would be remiss if I didn't ask for any memorable stories you have from the set of that film. Well, Ghostbusters was interesting because I. Uh, that's er- that was kind of early on in my time in Hollywood, and, and I um, I auditioned for it. I can't remember whether I auditioned for it more than once. May have been, but I I auditioned for Ivan Reitman, and and what we auditioned with originally was the William Atherton stuff, the guy from the EPA. Oh, okay. And that's what my impression was that I was. If they offered me anything, it was going to be that. And my agents felt the same way. And so the time passed, the time passed, and no. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sitting in my apartment, and not far from Warner Brothers, um, feeling sorry for myself one afternoon. <laughs> and they, they rang up, my agent rang up and said, uh, uh, do you want a booby prize or a consolation prize? And I said, yeah, okay. So they'd, <laughs> like, they'd like you to do this um, hotel manager. So I I went down to the Biltmore, and they did it on a... That sequence with me, really time-wise, should have probably been done over two days or two nights. Yeah. But they were way behind. They had been, on. They had been, I guess, back in New York, and they were back in Hollywood, and they were... All you know, money's burning and all of that kind of stuff. So they were trying to cram in all of it in one one night, and so we went down to the Biltmore Hotel, and that's where that all is is done. But if you remember when they arrive and we walk down the corridor and we we eventually go to the door where they go in to try to de-ghost, and <laughs> that sequence was tricky for camera moves. And it was very closely timed um, on certain lines had to be at certain places in order to, to make the move. Yeah. And so off we go. Um, and I knew my lines and I knew the cues and all. And then they start making up stuff. <laughs> and that's fine because they're very funny guys. But that's <laughs> not good for me because I can't make up lines. <laughs> I'm, I'm not allowed to do that. And I have to say things at certain times. So we, we did, you know, the, you know, several shots were ruined. <laughs> and so finally, Ivan got very annoyed and, and began to tell me off a bit. And I'm Uh-oh. standing there sort of taking it. I, you know, you're not going to say, uh, listen, Ivan, it's not my fault. These guys are messing me. Come on. <laughs> I, I, you don't do that. So fortunately, Dan Aykroyd piped up and said, you know, back off, Ivan, words to that effect. Yeah. You know, not his fault. We're the, we're the, you know, we're the culprits. And they, and they sort of saved my, my reputation. And <laughs> eventually we were, we were able, you know, able to get it. Um, it was, it, it was very interesting because when I, I did two movies almost simultaneously, that all of me and Ghostbusters. Yeah. And when I read Ghostbusters, I thought, Eh. and I read all of me, and I was laughing all the way through the script. It was <laughs> so funny. 
And uh, then when Ghostbusters came out, um, we uh, we went to a cast and crew. My 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 agent went with me, and we sat there. And afterwards, we came out saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know, <laughs> it wasn't really working." Then I, I I have four godsons, and they 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 were very little at the time, and yeah. so I took them to see the movie, and. Um, we were going over to Westwood and and walking up to the theater, and immediately I'm recognized by the people waiting in line. <laughs> and I thought, oh, interesting. Um, and then we get in, and people are treating it like the Rocky Horror Show. They're they're shouting out lines before they happen. Well, it's a very quotable film. <laughs> you know, so that you know they're they're going on about that, and and then afterwards, again, more recognition for me, and I thought, yeah, this is probably something that's going to, you know, certainly uh, exceed any expectations I had for it. Yeah. And from then on, it was fine, and I finally got my full kind of credit with my my four godsons when when it came out in Mad Magazine. And yeah. That, that, and there's like two or three drawings of me in that. <laughs> That's awesome. And so finally, finally, I had some kind of credibility with that. If I, if I could make Mad Magazine, <laughs> uh, but it, it it was it was one of those parts that again, it's not that big or that important in some ways, but it was amazingly useful for me. Sure. Uh, yeah. The only problem I had was trying to convince people I I didn't just play prissy little men in bow ties, <laughs> uh, but the recognizability from it, um, the way people were wild about it in London last last summer, um, it's it it's been very useful, um, and it just shows you that you can never gauge. Um, how something's going to play. I, I mean, I don't know what would have happened if I got that guy from the EPA. I don't know whether it would have been as, in some ways, as memorable. Well, it's funny. Literally, every time I hear that something costs $5,000, I can't help but repeat your line. $5,000, I had no idea it'd be so much, I won't pay it. I won't pay it. Everybody wanted me to write on their picture, I won't pay it, <laughs> buy my autograph. And I did about 600 of them last summer. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I'm supposed to be signing some more stuff they're sending me here. So it's been very, you know, very, very useful. Um, and those guys are great guys. I worked with Dan Aykroyd again and Couch Trip, um, and very, very nice guy, very easy to work with, yeah. very easy going. Are there any other upcoming projects you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I... I don't have anything uh, other than what I can't talk about. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so that that's that. I, I I have done something on Kirby Buckets, which is that kids show. Right. Yeah. That's for Disney XD, right? Yeah. And uh, they, I had fun with that. I don't know whether he'll come back again, but he's the kind of evil father, superintendent of the school. Yeah. Either evil father or the principal, who's pretty sleazy anyway but anyway <laughs> i get get to play that and that and that was fun that, yeah. i mean you think uh, it's a little kid show but it wasn't it's, it's actually it's actually fun i was treated very well and uh they did a great job on a ball camp and even the kids shows i mean especially on disney but the, the production value is really getting put into those shows now and the animation on that show is great too 
Yeah, they do indeed. It's um, I I was very impressed, and they have taken over a whole building here in Burbank. Yeah, um, that belongs just to that production, and they do all their casting and editing and shooting and all of that in 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 one building. Um, so I I'm hoping that that he'll come back again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's what we all live and hope for. <laughs> sure. Uh, because I, I love I love being an actor, and uh, as I said, I love doing it. Um, my goal is to die somewhere around my 90th birthday, between the matinee and evening performance, and come back that night playing the corpse. Right? <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to end it. I think <laughs> um, I want to thank you again so much for sharing your time with us today. We really appreciate it. Get an old actor wound up, and all you do is get. stories and more stories thank you so much okay thank you bye-bye all right well i think that about wraps it up for uh season two episode 13 Mm -hmm. unfortunately yeah (laughs) there's really not much to say about it um Uh, like it's it's just a mediocre episode yeah but um you know got penny parker back we got we got a lot of cool actors in this episode that's its saving grace. Yeah, the saving grace is is we have Elia Baskin, Michael Ensign, uh, Vincent Schiavelli, like these people who I love mm-hmm. in pretty much everything they do. Um, and it's nice to see Terry Hatcher back. It's nice to finally get into the Robert Donner uh, episodes because yeah. he's going to come back. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of script problems. This feels like it went through a few too many drafts and... Um, and I could see why these writers maybe didn't come back for mm. another one, unfortunately. But um, I don't, and I don't think we'll see Yuri Dimitri or Biff again. Yeah. Um, Penny Parker will come back later, though. Yes. And there will be better episodes with her. Um, some better, some worse. But... <laughs> some, some worse. I actually think her next episode is is one of my favorites. The the clip one. Yeah. Even, <laughs> even though it's a clip show, I mean, I I really like every time she smiles. But mm-hmm. I feel like. I actually like the character that she plays in the clip show yeah. and that she actually has anything to do in the clip show. It's fun. I, I, I always just think of the episode where she inherits a haunted mansion. Yep. <laughs> That's going <laughs> to happen. Yeah, so that'll be fun. You have that to look forward to. You do not, unfortunately, have anything worthwhile look, to look forward to next week. <laughs> so um, don't, don't hype it up too much. <laughs> this week's Correction Corner is brought to you by Mark Hagen and Costadinos who simultaneously informed us that, despite our understanding that Pete's wife and son from last week's episode do not reappear, it turns out they do, though played by different actors. Michael shows up again in Season 4, Episode 10, Fraternity of Thieves, and Connie in Season 6, Episode 21, Hindsight. Costa also points out that technically GPS has been available for civil use since 1984, and not the early 90s as we had previously speculated. Back to the show. And uh, on that note, I think that is, that is everything we have to say about uh, Season 2, Episode 13, Soft Touch. Um, if you'd like to disagree with us about the merits of this episode, um, you can find us on Twitter, at Opening Gambit, uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast, and our website, phoenixfoundationpodcast.com. If you're digging the show, feel free to review us on iTunes. And don't tune in next week <laughs> when we cover Season 2, Episode 14, Birthday. Um, and then we'll be back season two episode 15 pirates which is you know what almost better you know what? these are great episodes and you should always listen listen twice next week 
you're gonna love it. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thanks.